Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's podcast, which is on Julius Baer's views on the healthcare sector. I am Yaoshin Wong from Equities Specialist Asia, and I will be your host for this session. Joining me as our speaker is Guy Bastard, healthcare analyst from our Zurich office. Hello, Guy. How are you? Hi, Yoshin. Good to hear from you. Turbulent times at the moment, but all good on my end. Mm, good. So we are in the thick of second quarter earnings season, and it would be good to take stock of how numbers are panning out. Good news is that results so far have been slightly better than expected, given that we were fearing the worst heading into it. Bad news is that number of companies beating sales and earnings continues to decline from first quarter. So the deceleration continues. If you are looking at which sectors are beating, you would be able to pick out defensive sectors like staples and healthcare. So let's focus on the healthcare sector for now. And let me ask you, Guy, what is your take on the sector? Yeah, as you said it, Yoshin, the JB research view on the healthcare sector as a whole, it's overweight. And well, there's a few reasons for this, both top-down and bottom-up. It's your go-to defensive sector. Now, healthcare has performed better than most, actually, with 10% outperformance versus the broad market globally. And that's not just value inflation, right? So the sector as a whole, it's delivered an average annual earnings growth of 11.5% since 1985. That's the second highest after tech, and it's more than the broad US market. We believe that the structural drivers of this growth, they're intact, and they'll continue to support above market growth rates. Now, foremost amongst these drivers are population aging, as well as increasing rates of healthcare spending, especially in emerging markets. Against this backdrop, we expect that sales and earning growth will be ahead of other defensive high-quality sectors. So, you know, for example, consumer defensive. And also slightly ahead of the expected growth rates for the broad market, at least for 2022. In addition to those perspectives, this sector offers relatively safe dividend yield of around 2%. And if you combine that with share buybacks and growing earnings, well, that's a good package for shareholder returns. And then when you look at those companies from a bottom-up perspective, what you'll see is that valuations overall are undemanding, and they're broadly companies with pricing power, as I'm sure we'll touch upon later. So that's why we like the sector. Mm, It's very interesting. Now, looking at things a little bit more granular, the healthcare sector can be broken down into biopharma, medtech, and services. Do these sectors all have the same growth drivers? Well, sure. So... Within healthcare sector, you have, as you said, a few different industries. Now, by far the largest is the biopharma industry. These are companies which discover and manufacture drugs. The business is to sell drugs which are under patent protection for several years. Now, within this group, you have big companies and you have small companies. The return drivers for each of these are relatively idiosyncratic. And they depend on what a given company's product portfolio, as well as pipeline, looks like and how those two fit with the upcoming patent expiries. Adjacent to these companies, you have so-called life science tools businesses. Now, they supply lab equipment, but they're also engaged in the contract manufacturing of drugs. 
This is very important for both large and small pharmaceutical companies. On the one hand, you can have large-scale manufacturing, but additionally, they're very important for the small biopharma companies because, well, they support the manufacturing and development of smaller batches to accompany clinical studies. Here, when you think about the drivers, the overall level of funding for healthcare research is a major one. These companies are kind of the pick and shovel for labs and drug development. Now, this is a good thing because spending is structurally increasing. As mentioned, we, there are the few drivers such as population aging and the need for ever better medicines. And if you think about funding, well, you've got both public, such as government funding for academic research, and private funding, such as IPO activity. And both of these are trending upward, although the latter has cooled down in the recent months. So that's for life science tools. Now, if we move on to medtech, well, that, or medical equipment, as it's also called, you've got pacemakers, knee replacements, ear implants, surgical robots, and everything in between. Here, the growth drivers vary somewhat, depending on the area. What we can say overall is that this is a broadly more cyclical industry, in particular those companies whose business depends on elective surgeries, as we saw during COVID. But overall, we have the same structural drivers mentioned earlier, and these are also companies which profit from population aging and increase in healthcare spend. Finally, you have services. Now, this is also quite a heteroclite group, ranging from dialysis clinics to hospital operators, pharmacy managers, drug distributors, and the like. Here, overall, scale matters, but provided you reach a critical mass, these are relatively strong and stable businesses. So that's kind of the overview for the sectors. Excellent. Thanks, Guy, for helping us understand the differences between these subsectors. That was very useful. Now, a follow-up question for you. Which is our preference between them? Sure. So we've liked large-cap pharma a lot in the first half of the year, as well as integrated insurance or what is called managed care companies. Now, these have strong fundamental defensive traits, and we can speak to that later. And actually, we haven't been the only ones to like them. Both sectors have performed very well year-to-date, but we continue to see upside. Then, moving on to the tools side, the dynamic has been a bit different, and it's been highly contingent on COVID. Initially, COVID-19 pushed up this subsector. The expectation was that increased demand in manufacturing, especially COVID vaccine, but also lab equipment, this would increase the growth rates. This trade has been unwinding since the beginning of the year, and it's been amplified by a rotation out of growth stocks. The silver lining, however, is that this industry does not command the same lofty valuations as six or ten months ago, but they do still have high growth rates. So we're likely reaching an inflection point right now. And going into the second half, we may be able to find good entry points. On medtech, well, as mentioned, some procedures were delayed due to COVID. And, well, there had been expectations of a strong positive impact from pent-up demand, a kind of catch-up effect, if you will. However, well, this looks increasingly unlikely to happen. And there are a few reasons for this. First, well, there's simply no slack in the patient care system, no capacity, if you will. And that's primarily caused by staffing shortages. And, well, that would be necessary if you want an over-proportional pickup in procedures. Second, companies themselves have struggled to meet demand as they face complex supply chain challenges. And this is not new that supply chains have been challenged for the past few months. Lastly, the macro picture has changed considerably over the last six months. And if you think about consumer demand for more discretionary type spending, such as aesthetic procedures or premium dental implants. 
that's likely to stay lower as well. So we stay cautious, although against the later side of the year, we may selectively re-enter the space. Very interesting. Now, as we are seeing results come out, the healthcare sector seems to have pricing power during inflationary periods. Could this be a safe harbor for portfolios in current turbulent times? Absolutely, that's correct. Large cap pharma companies in particular, these have strong pricing power. And now if you look at drug prices, and by which I mean, I don't mean prescription drugs, right? But oncology, immunology, and drugs which are administered by physicians, not the one you get at the drugstore. If you look at those prices, historically, they've been increasing faster than the broad price levels. Now, during that same period, large cap pharma margins have stayed high and stable. So these higher prices were not met by volume decrease. And this makes sense, right? Demand for medicine is inelastic or, well, people get sick regardless of the state of the economy. In addition, large cap biopharma companies sell drugs which are under strong patent protection. And that means that the barrier to entry for competitors are relatively high, especially when you think about the cost. So many drugs are oligopoly-like markets in their own small therapeutic areas. The hard part, of course, is discovering and developing these drugs. And this brings us to the cost basis of these companies. And that's also a reason for which we continue to like this industry. Blue chip biopharma companies have much higher gross margins. And so besides the cost of goods, the biggest difference in the cost basis versus the rest of the market is the R&D spend. Again, this makes sense. These companies spend a lot of money to develop and market their drugs, but are much less exposed to input prices relative to other sectors. This means that, you know, when you think about increasing input costs, large cap biopharma companies are less affected. In the past, this has resulted in a relatively flat profit margins throughout the economic cycle. Well, in fact, it's resulted in some of the lowest earnings volatility when you compare it to other sectors. I also want to mention that healthcare as a sector is relatively protected against rising yields when you think about the impact on refinancing. So corporate leverage, it's back at a record high across different sectors and especially defensive sectors have increased debt significantly for the past decade. Healthcare stands out in terms of balance sheet strengths relative to those. Leverage in the global healthcare sectors continues to be relatively low, and you've got strong cash flow generation. So when you think about those two together, you've got relative protections against higher interest rates and rising credit spreads, and fundamental pricing power. So we continue to like large cap pharma as a defensive space during this time. That was great. I have one more question to ask you. This sector has traditionally seen M&A activity as large pharma companies look for smaller, faster-growing companies to supplement their portfolio and provide growth catalysts. I must say that that level of M&A activity has been slower than usual in recent months. Why is that so? And do we expect things to pick up? You're right. M&A is a key part of biopharma markets. And it's also an important driver of sentiment and also stock price performance, especially in the small and mid-cap biopharma space. One of the reasons for which M&A is so important is that you know, when you think a bit high level at large cap biopharma companies as investors versus other types of investors, those large cap biopharma companies can be considered to be better informed. What do I mean by that? I mean that they know the markets. They know because they have the sales force on the ground. They know the physicians. They know the physician prescriptions and treatment patterns. They know the regulatory environments. And well, of course, they know the science behind the drugs because they spend so much time and energy 
to fund the research. So when a large cap biopharma buys a small one, that means that it's a strong sign of confidence in the asset and the platform. And now the reverse is also true. If big pharma is not buying, then why should I? And that's kind of been the mood from February of last year until the beginning of this summer. And this has to be put back into context. Immediately after COVID, right? So in March of 2020, the small cap biopharma space saw a record rally for just under a year. Now, this was buoyed in part by unprecedented IPO pace, especially in the ultra small cap companies, eased by the overall easy monetary policy. So following this rally, there was kind of a hangover effect, especially as, as said, large cap pharma did not seem very interested. And another factor which pushed away people was that suddenly you had so many small cap names to keep track of. And that was becoming complicated, even for specialists. But crucially, there were several high profile clinical failures for the past 18 months. And this had somewhat of a um, chilling effect. And that leads us to the other key driver of small cap biopharma space, good clinical data. Because ultimately, the value of these companies depends on discovering drugs which heal people. And that can only be established through clinical trials. So looking at the second half of this year, what do we need to see if you want to see significant outperformance in this space? First, good data. Second, this data has to be vetted or backed, if you will, by continued acceleration in M&A activity. We believe that both these things need to happen. And to a high degree, a lot of good data and significant M&A acceleration for people to be interested in this space again. I'll also point out that um, the higher interest rate environment is not helpful for these small companies because these are really long duration assets. By and large, these are unprofitable companies with the entirety of sales and earnings several years in the future and contingent on success of clinical trials. So long duration assets. So while we do believe that there is significant value in this space in the form of pent up innovation, we stay on sidelines for the time being. And, well, we prefer large-cap pharma, as just outlined before. Mm. That was very interesting, Guy. Thank you for sharing your insights. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Yoshin. Great. And before we wrap up today's session, I'll add some color on our thoughts on Asian healthcare. Similar to the developed world, one of the structural tailwinds that the healthcare sector here is set to benefit from is the sharp rise of the number of people above the age of 65, who tend to spend three times more on healthcare than the rest of the population. Furthermore, there's a strong geographical angle in emerging markets, particularly in Asia, where the share of GDP dedicated to healthcare is unusually low and is expected to rise structurally in the coming years. China is the world's largest population of older adults and is experiencing population aging on an unprecedented scale. However, it spends only about 6% of its GDP on healthcare. According to the WHO, China had 254 million older people aged 60 and above in 2019, with 75% of them suffering from non-communicable diseases such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and hypertension. By 2040, an estimated 402 million people, which is 28% of the total population, will be above the age of 60. This has made the development of a healthy China central to the Chinese government's agenda, and there have been conscious efforts to promote clinical trial activity. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is about all the time we have for today's podcast. We hope that you have enjoyed it and found it useful. We will be back with another episode of our Beyond Markets podcast. Till then, 
Be safe and bye for now. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.